0: Welcome to Future Flying, the podcast formerly known as Cleared for Takeoff. In this episode, we welcome our friends from KLM to talk about all things data. welcome to another episode. Uh, I'm Mark Roboff, your host, and joining me today is Ravi Rajmani, Paula Olivio, and Martin Whitfield. Hello, guys and gals, and I'm very, very pleased to have as our guest for this episode, Dirk Burley and Leon Gomans from KLM. Welcome, gentlemen. This is, as we know, our Aviation Technology Podcast. We are focused on discussing technology that is coming to transform and disrupt the aviation industry that we're all deeply passionate about, that we love. And this is a podcast for aviation professionals, hobbyists, enthusiasts, or anyone that's interested in knowing how or learning about how technology like artificial intelligence or blockchain or IoT is coming to change the way we fly and so uh Dirk can you give us a, a brief background on on who you are and what you do at KLM hi to everybody uh Dirk Wille here
1: um speaking from uh, from a rainy uh, Netherlands at this moment uh how do I uh, what do I do I do uh, work as officially as a change manager most of the time I uh, I act as a, a product owner for a uh uh, introduction of, uh, or a uh, Salesforce uh, application we use. Um, and then other times uh, in my job, I uh, pursue innovations, uh, or I try to, uh, to do that uh, within the, the, the department we have. So yeah, that's basically what I do. And uh, this uh, job I do for the last three years now, uh, but almost working 25 years in the aviation industry in different jobs.
2: Excellent. And Leon. My name is uh, Leon Romans. I uh, work as an employee for uh, KLM, but I am part of the Air France KLM group organization where I uh, work for the IT uh, division at the CIO office. where. Uh, we have a department responsible for looking at uh, new technologies and uh, in that department uh, called uh, the IT innovation uh, department uh, i'm science officer and my role there is to bring uh, scientific research alongside uh, use cases in our very uh, uh, diverse uh, business. And uh, those use cases include uh, use cases from engineering and maintenance or MRO organization uh, where the data sharing is an important topic. And regarding this uh, data sharing topic, I'm doing uh, also work as a uh, part-time professor at the University of Amsterdam where I'm part of a research group that is uh, looking at all kinds of uh, infrastructures that enable uh, data sharing uh, to be performed in a safe and secure way. And uh, we are researching that topic called the digital data marketplace. So, and this is how I bring both worlds together and see how our industry ultimately, also working uh, with uh, groups uh, at the SAE, to see how we can benefit from this uh, uh, research and this context I bring uh, for the industry.
0: And uh, you mentioned SAE and of course, that's the thread that ties us all together. So where we all work together in our day jobs is in industry standards development. Dirk works with all of us around the development of blockchain standards and electronic data transaction standards, and of course, uh, Leon, you're on my team for developing the means of compliance for the certification of ai and you on on our committee on on our g34 committee are leading the data assurance team um so everyone that's looking at how do we manage gathering of data and and how do we define a methodology that allows us to assess whether the data we've gathered is absolutely the data that we need to have to build a safe system right and that's a really a, a critical task and Robbie and paula are also members of sae with me and we'll work very closely with on our on our standards efforts for ai and for uh, data in general and of course martin is our, our esteemed colleague and chair of the digital and data steering group within sae it ties us all together so this is going to be a, a great interview and a, just a great conversation i think about how data is transforming Uh, The industry, uh, particularly from the operator's perspective. So again, Dirk and Leon, thank you so much for joining. Um, So let me uh, we'll start with some background and some personal history questions. I think our audience is always interested in how we all get involved in this industry and what, what really brought us to aviation before we get into the nitty-gritty of what we see coming down the pike in terms of technical innovation and what we're working on, and, and how we think technical innovation, particularly around the, um, you know, the the domain of data, big data, and blockchain, and uh, digital thread, digital twin, and and other systems coming together, how is that going to transform you know, how we how we fly and and maintain airplanes? So, in terms of in terms of history uh I'll, and i'll i'll sift back and forth between the two of you gentlemen so We'll start with Dirk. just give us a little bit about uh uh where you uh, went to school and and what was it about your upbringing that really attracted you to come into the world of aviation
1: mm, okay well um some uh, some 50 uh, plus days, day some 50 years plus some days uh Ago, I was born uh, at the, in the west end uh, of the Netherlands, in the famous city of Alkmaar, where is uh, a big cheese market. Um, so it's not only Gouda for all the people. No, no, it's it's much bigger than that. Uh, please remember nice. that. Um, uh, upbringing um, uh, also a small town, um, uh, always lived lifted small town. My father used to work in a uh, in a factory where they made uh, concrete. Um, and as it turned out in, a, in later years, um, uh, even though he already was, uh, was passed uh, is, uh, passed away before that, that he was working in logistics and somewhere in between, um, I think in my genes, logistics was, um, was implanted. Um, and from that, so after my high school, I went to, uh, to a technical school to, uh, to be a technical logistical engineer and doing some, uh, some jobs here and there. Um, one was with Heineken. Uh, well, that's, you can, uh, you can imagine it was a good uh, product confrontation. Eh? So, in that sense, uh, um, and from that on, I went uh, to KLM, uh, and and that was I started my job as a uh, as a uh, planner in of parts uh, at catering in-flight services. Eh? So the the Heineken uh, experience comes back in handy. Um, I used then to have a uh, a large uh, amount of red hair, so I did a red wine uh, planning. Um, that <laughs> makes sense. Um, my grey colleague did white wine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's, from that on, I was into the airline business. Somewhere in the line uh, from IT uh, to ground, working in uh, at the ground stations uh, at uh, at Schiphol Centrum, I ended up with the maintenance control center. Uh, some twelve years ago, doing there the tactical planning um, for for ENM for the engineering and maintenance department, in order to to maximize uh, flight efficiency. So um, some of you might know we 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 are one of the uh, airlines which fly the seven four seven at the at the most flight hours uh, up till. Uh, Last week, because we uh, we had to say goodbye to the to the last seven four seven in our fleet for at least for the passenger flight. but, but the, the, uh, the the idea was to maximize the uh, the amount of or minimize actually the amount of space or time needed for maintenance uh, and to maximize the amount of time uh, able to fly uh, as a kind of liaison on the one end between the guys who make the uh, the flight schedule. The technical uh, owner of the flight uh, of the aircraft and the maintenance department at the other end. Uh, and from there on, I went into uh, component business. There, I was a department head of uh, of, uh, of a department which uh, managed all the repairs uh, on the components, especially the internal the the ones we, we we send out to external companies. And a big team of forty people uh, doing all kinds of stuff. And there, from there on, I went into uh, to change management and and in order to to bring uh, well uh, change in behavior, change in processes and change in systems. Um, is the experience. These are the combination of all three. Um, so yeah, that's that's a bit that's a bit how I got into to the airline business. The benefit of a of a company like the KLM. Eh? So there's on one hand I was uh, was able to um to see the the, the passenger side uh, in the way I worked at the ground services uh, department uh, I see the technical side I did see the commercial side all these kinds of stuff I di- I did see and and that was uh, that is still for me one of the nice things about KLM the, the diversity of uh the 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 whole airline business uh, in which I can uh, can move around uh, as a person
0: Oh, that's awesome! Just one question to ask before we get into more of the technical side, and and that's a fascinating transformation starting from catering to logistics there into then IT and into change management. When you were working on the on the uh, yes you know, sort of the passenger uh, side of the catering side, did you work with the little? Uh, ceramic houses with the with the gin inside
3: I absolutely
1: <laughs> Absolutely uh how, my how colleague many different and I worked, Yeah 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 we worked, uh, were, the, the were the you testing
3: of the- some of that <laughs> t- t- Were you taste testing some of the gin Well
1: not these these little houses um, <laughs> because um,
3: before it went
1: exactly, so um it's not so good stuff what is in it uh, actually, uh, to my opinion, uh, but as a planner of uh, all kinds of uh, wines and liquors, and also being close to the uh, head of the the purchasing department, who was also head of the tasting department within uh, uh, KLM after a uh, testing session, we usually also ended up with a bottle of three uh, we could take home uh, oh, also to taste for nice. ourselves. Um, so yeah that, that, that was a um there was a good spirit in uh, in that department
0: <laughs> how many how many because i i I've had the pleasure of flying KLM up front uh, long haul on a couple of occasions and I always remember you know, getting one of those uh, you know, the, the, the Jennifer, the right the yeah. the houses at the end of the flight and they're all different and I'd still have them somewhere but how many how many uh, are there
1: well actually that's that's very uh, funny um, as you know, last year we celebrated our uh, uh, 100 years as a as an uh, as a flying as a company. Uh, so um, at the same time as as, as I uh, uh, celebrate my birthday, the KLM also celebrates its birthday, <laughs> and with each birthday they uh, supply a new house. Oh boy! So at this moment, uh, since October, we have now 101 blue Delft blue houses. Uh, available wow. but i can tell you there are never 101 air uh, houses on the aircraft um, ah. that i can tell you uh, definitely because mm-hmm. they were they are supplied in boxes with uh, around 24 houses when i'm not uh, mistaken um, and that's they come in in a big container ship uh, 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 let's say number one to, to number 24 in that container and then they are shipped aboard so it is not that in, in one set is one until uh, 101 in this case, no.
0: And I remember back when we were all traveling and I'd be in the Schiphol um, club, you know, the crown lounge. Yeah, the lounge. They're yeah. all, I think, on display. Are there a, yeah. are all 100 on display or 101 yes. on display there? Right. Yeah. 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 Next next time, once we're all traveling again and the next time I'm, I'm uh, flying through Amsterdam, I'll... Uh, I'll count. (laughs) You can count,
4: absolutely. And then (laughs) there are
1: probably also some houses which are not numbered. Because if you would fly as a honeymoon honeymoon couple, so if your wife and uh, and you are flying uh, on your honeymoon with KLM, and you uh, mentioned that when you book your flight, there's a special house uh, uh, for these people. And it used to be the um, the palace uh, on the dam, as it's called uh, from Amsterdam. So it's the big house. But that was the, the in that days, uh, in my days, that was the uh, the gift. And I think now it's another type of house, uh, which is, uh, is supplied if you will to fly as
0: a, as a honeymoon couple.
3: Oh, good! I'm going uh-huh. to have my imaginary honeymoon very soon.
0: <laughs> when, when, when I went on my uh, honeymoon with my wife ten years ago, we flew Air France uh, to Europe so that we could fly on the on the then new A380. But unfortunately, in both legs, our flights were down gauged to triple sevens because the A380s we were supposed to be flying on were delayed or uh-huh. not out of
3: the factory yet. So hey, on are- that, um, ju- just just uh, one thing that I think you forgot to mention um, is that Dirk is uh, and Leon are also quite involved with the G31, Electronic Transactions in Aerospace uh, uh, Committee, in addition to the AI Committee. So, in fact, uh, Dirk is leading a document there. Could you talk a little about the ERC document, Dirk? Uh, yeah,
1: we're just starting that up uh, from the G31 uh, Committee. Um, and the idea is is that it is an uh, electronic uh, uh, certificate, um, and, and 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 in in the sense that with that electronic certificate, uh, if you could standardize uh, the way it, um, and you you handle your 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 data, um, that would bring a lot of efficiency, uh, and also um, it, I think uh, uh, an added. Um, uh, bonus in uh, in safety because um, uh, to to be frankly it, uh, you could temper uh, I don't say it happens but I say it could be happen you could tamper with with uh with, with, um, uh, with paper. Um, we explored uh, within the KLM also, eh, we probably end up uh, in, in, a, in a next uh, or moving on more, uh, the, the opportunity, the, the options of, of using blockchain. Um, mm,
4: we'll talk about that, that.
1: A bit. Exactly. So we'll talk about that later. But, um, as a, as, 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 as one of the options is to, um, it was standardize and, um, mm. electronically, um, create a, a, a document or create a, a flow. Or uh, information which is uh, is then better storable, uh, easier to use, uh, et cetera et cetera. so that's the idea uh, on this uh, topic.
3: oh mm. thank, th- thank you Dirk. Uh, I mean, just just want to fo- uh, follow up with one little thing. You talked about flow of information and data, and I know Leon has been doing a lot of that in that area. and 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 from your academic perspective, Leon, you've been working with this uh, uh, light path. Program. Uh, would you enlighten us a little? <laughs> and okay. I mean that as a pun. <laughs> Just uh, so fun. Yeah, that,
2: that sheds a little bit of background uh, uh, on my uh, research uh, part of my uh, career. When I uh, started uh, originally my uh, career, it was in, uh, especially in data communications and networking. I started as uh, network development engineers. Um, working on um, uh, the first incarnations of uh, packet-switched networks, uh, which was uh, commercially uh, uh, deployed by a couple of companies, uh, uh, Telenet, Timenet, and the one I worked for was ADP Network Services. And they uh, made uh, essentially time-sharing services on mainframes available via a network uh, to the globe, And, and those nodes switching the traffic Programmed uh, with um, software we developed at ADP, and I was part of the development. So, uh, so I have a pretty strong background in data communications and networking. And uh, later on, I started to work for network component manufacturer, probably called Cabletron. And uh, I started there to work with uh, the academic world to do uh, uh, network research. And this is uh, how I got to know several people in in academia. And one of the problems uh, we were uh, looking at is uh, how to ensure quality of service across a a network. And uh, you can do that in a couple of ways. You can do that at uh, the packet level and you do that through priority queues and stuff. But another way is to create a dedicated circuit from one destination to another. Using switches and not routers, but switching equipment, and uh, program the switches to create an end-to-end path. And even if you go a level lower, and the switching level, you have optical devices that can also be programmed. Light paths, end-to-end, and that's where the term comes from. And you use optical network connections, interconnected via switches that are programmed to create end-to-end uh, connections. The, and- the technical problem, of course, uh, well, if you have the right interfaces, you can do that. But uh, enabling an end-to-end light path is not only a technical problem. Those elements, those different Optical connections are owned by different operators. So you must first get an authorization to use that particular uh, piece of uh, uh, network by this operator to allow it to be interconnected with another piece of network from another operator. And this requires an authorization system to drive these connections. And this is where I started to do research into the problem of multi-domain authorization. How do you create, you know, decisions on providing uh, such connections in an end-to-end fashion and obtaining each from each individual operator the authorization to allow this to do this and create an end-to-end service, so that's what what started my research really, uh, that kind of questions, and I started that research in the Internet Engineering Task Force back in 1998, and then, uh, and started to uh, develop some uh, some documents you can uh, read up on if you're interested, uh, all those uh, Internet. Uh, Standard documents are called requests for command documents (RFCs). So, if you go into uh, and Google it, uh, RFC 2903 until 2906, you see my name on the RFCs on researching how multi-domain authorization could uh, operate their architecture and authorization sequences. So
3: I was fascinated by learning that you can get 10 to 100 gigabits per second throughput speeds.
2: Yep, well, that's uh, in the research world. We can uh, have connections end to end set up, uh, and that have indeed 100 gig, can even go up to uh, 800 if you want. Kind of connections are being used for, uh, you know, uh, projects um, like uh, in uh, high energy physics, uh, where CERN is uh, generating huge amounts of data that needs to be spread across the world. And if you would do it through the regular internet, you will immediately create a denial of service attack. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's why a separate infrastructure uh, was created that allows these kind of uh, transfers to happen at uh, at reasonable speeds Uh, so uh, uh, transferring a terabyte uh, of data uh, via these kind of connections is not taking that long but if you do it via the regular internet then uh, (laughs) you uh, may end up doing a transfer in a day (laughs) so
0: i mean there's systems already in in commercial uh use say melanox right has uh uh, switches and, and bridges that can go well beyond ten gigabyte uh, or gigabit uh, per second speeds. Even my new computer has an Intel uh, uh, ten gigabit network jack, but uh, alas, you know only uh, you know well, I guess I'm one of the lucky few in America to have a gigabit uh, internet connection. So yeah, you know, it's not it's not really put to use yet. <laughs> but uh, so here 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 for the group is a just a quick trivial pursuit question. <laughs> do you, uh, does anyone here know the company that invented packet switching?
2: Uh, a company, uh, both Baranek and Newman.
0: Correct, BBN Technologies. And do you know, uh, do you know who owns them today?
2: Uh, Raytheon.
0: That's right. So yeah, because,
2: uh, uh, I have collaborated quite a bit with uh, BBN. And uh, in a project called uh, Genie, the Global Environment for Network Innovations, and uh, Chip Elliott uh, was uh, from BBN, one of the... Uh, Future's uh, officers uh, looking at uh, future internet capabilities. And I had uh, many conversations with him, which was really great uh, to have such an organization on board because you're right, they are the first one that built the internet message processor Mm -hmm. uh, that was used by uh, Leonard Kleinrock in his experiments. Uh, And and that's where the first internet packet was created. We crashed, (laughs) but uh, that's uh, yeah. And and I've been collaborating with uh, you know these organizations quite uh, quite closely. So uh,
0: so here's the kicker question for the team. Does anyone know what BBN was founded for, and what they did prior to inventing packet? Okay? No. <laughs> they were an acoustics research firm, and uh, the yeah. the last the last big uh, the last big project they did before inventing the internet is doing the acoustics for the Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center in New York City.
3: I think you're wrong there. I think uh, Al Gore invented the internet. Uh, well, it's a debate <laughs> whether yeah. Al Gore, you know,
0: did or did not. But uh, it is, it is, it is a confirmed fact that uh, <laughs> you know Bolt, Baranek, and Newman were founded in uh, in uh, in the M I. They, they came out of MIT, mm-hmm. so they were they were acoustic research sense. out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Did Avery Fisher Hall, right? Which in its original incarnation, had mixed reviews and then went on to invent the Internet,
3: which I think is a hoot. Had, I mean, had they been successful with Avery Fisher, all we may not have got the Internet. Perhaps that that's a good. <laughs> exactly right.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Liana. I, yeah. I, I want to ask you what I asked Dirk. How did you get into aerospace? Tell, me, uh, tell us a little bit about outside of the networking. Uh, outside, uh, Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, and, and what attracted you to, uh, you know, to aviation.
2: So, uh, well, how I did get into uh, aerospace, or at least work for, uh, for KLM, when I worked for uh, Cabletron and did innovations, I also helped uh, to win KLM as a customer and I helped to <laughs> essentially uh, put uh, a huge campus uh, network for their engineering and maintenance uh, department back then uh, across the oh. airport and uh, connect around uh, 6,000 uh, workstations to uh, an internet uh, infrastructure. But I also did a lot of uh, you know product innovation with them because we also introduced several new products and KLM was my beta customer.
5: Oh, cool.
2: and uh, we did, uh, and that went okay and very nicely until the dot com bubble bursted in uh, 2000, <laughs> 2001. and uh, Cableton uh, did some funny things uh, with uh, the share uh, and the stock prices, uh, and they got ultimately a class action suit, and some people ended up in jail. <laughs> oh. uh, because they were doing some, uh, some illegal things with uh, you know, driving up stock prices. And that was the moment where I said, I'm going to um, you know, look for something else. And I was already working with uh, the research world. So at that point, I already knew uh, the current professor, Kees De Laat, from uh, University of Amsterdam. And with Case, I was uh, working in the um, uh, engineering and uh, the IETF on uh, multi-domain authorization. And when the dot-com bubble bursted, and my company did a couple of funny things, I decided to to continue this work in research, and Case offered me a position at University of Amsterdam to uh, essentially implement multi-domain authorization concepts. And um, I initially thought of this as this would be a very nice sabbatical <laughs> uh, to, uh, to be uh, around in the research world for some uh, some time, but uh, that lasted until about uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I wanted to go back to, uh, to uh, industry again. And uh, yeah, I called uh, one of my uh, old uh, friends before I knew I was working there <laughs> and <laughs> I uh, started to work for the IT operations department where um, there were lots of uh, uh, interesting questions to be answered when we were integrating the infrastructure of Air France and KLM and that needed to be aligned. So I, I worked quite a bit uh, on that uh, topic. So that's how I got involved uh, in uh, the airline uh, world out of the IT interest. And it's really interesting to be working as an IT guy for an airline because it's so much diversity in applications and kind of problems you can uh, encounter in IT that it was really interesting uh, and appealing. And then. Uh, case uh, the lab became uh, full professor uh, in 2011 uh, uh, and during my research period with him uh, i uh, did a lot of uh, publications and he said well whether you like it or not you're going to do your phd uh, based on your publications <laughs> with me <laughs> so uh, <laughs> i ended up uh, doing this and requesting uh, of course time at uh, klm for allowing being allowed to do this because yeah, and uh, at least a day a week uh, to work on your PhD. So uh, I was allowed to do that and uh, achieved uh, my PhD on uh, in 2014 on the topic of multi-domain authorization problems. So that's uh, that's how it <laughs> how I got uh, my PhD in the university world while working for the airline. So it's a that, great. That's uh, fantastic. You
0: fell into it, and we're, we're we're told, "Hey, you're you're doing this whether you like it or not, because you're you know, most of the way there as it is." Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, uh,
2: and on yeah. the other hand, I'm a hobby pilot uh, for uh, some time, so I uh, <laughs> I uh, started uh, doing microlight. Oh, cool! Uh, in the uh, nice. 90, uh, Eighty-seven, and I did my solo when Matthias Roost landed his plane on the square in Moscow. Oh wow! (laughs) And I soloed, but uh, I still remember that, and most of you have uh, remembered that as well. But, uh, and then uh, about a year later, I had so many flight hours that I could qualify as a flight instructor. So I started uh, teaching people to fly, and uh, then I became part of the exam committee and uh, became examiner, and then um, the board of uh, the Royal Netherlands Aeronautical Association, that is sort of the umbrella organization for all air sports in the Netherlands, asked me if I could join the board to help them do uh, the operational uh, uh, negotiation with uh, EASA that was trying to uh, introduce a new f- uh, pilot uh, uh, licensing uh, scheme. So. Mm. I- that uh, as a board member of the Royal Dutch Aeronautical Association, and was also a senior examiner for microlights in the Netherlands for some time.
0: Now so, I, I I do I do know that that uh, yeah the Royal Aeronautical Association in the Netherlands um is a little bit perhaps more royal than other countries' Royal Aeronautical Associations because the King like, yes. King Willem is a certified 737 pilot. Right? That's and correct. <laughs> I, I've heard he actually moonlights with KLM on occasion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. In order to keep his license, he needs to fly. Uh, and uh, ah. you could be very lucky um, at one time if you fly uh, 737 within. Uh, from KLM that, uh, yeah. that, that you are being flown by the king. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Have absolutely... you ever
3: been flown by the king,
1: Doug? No, no. I, I'm usually kicked out by the
0: king, but that's another
4: thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's a new spin on Royal Dutch Airlines. No, that is, it's like, is one of my favorite stories. I and mean, it's, it's, it's such a cool thing to, to, to hear about always, the royal family in the Netherlands. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll shift our conversation a little bit and talk a little bit more about technology. Um, you know, we've gotten some head Started already. Um, I have a couple of questions on AI, as because we're 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 all here uh, in large part due to the work we're all doing on AI. But then I want to get into blockchain because I know Dirk, you've had a lot of work um, with blockchain and blockchain related really use cases at KLM, and, and we're all interested in that as well. And uh, we'll we'll finish up with uh, really around uh, data sharing and understanding right, what what we need to do in the industry. When it comes to optimizing and uh, energizing you know our 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 maintenance activities and it really bringing you know change and transformation, what needs to be done at an ecosystem level that today isn't being done versus what can be done just airline by airline or OEM by OEM and then and then how how do we how do we build that ecosystem and how do we ensure trust uh, in that ecosystem? Um, but backing up a bit. So, if we talk about AI um, and the work that a lot of us are doing in the standards development space with SAE is around AI certification. What that's all about is taking an AI system and putting it on the airplane, right? Today we use AI in some in some parts, and not everywhere, but in some parts of aviation already, right? Predictive maintenance and prognostic systems. have uh, been leveraging machine learning models for some time. but. All of the AI that we use in aviation today sits in the data center. Um, when we put it on the aircraft, I'd like both of your positions on well, what do you think are the major benefits of being able to do that? And, and how do you see that transforming flight? Well, first of all, I think as yes, automate uh, the pilot away, uh,
1: meaning autonomous flight, eh? it should be in a couple of years or even now is possible technically. But I think no passenger would really uh, so step aboard an airplane which uh, uh, which has a which has a non-pilot. Although everybody is anxious to buy a, a autonomous car, a driving car. For instance, so so there is a huge gap in flying and and driving, in that sense. But I think it could help at least a pilot, for instance, when he is helped with decision making. And well, he's when some stuff is, uh, especially in a crisis situation, has it's been taken care of, uh, from him. Um, so meaning that um, he 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 can focus on the more pressing matters at that moment. Uh, and on the other hand, if you if you pers- you see that from, from a matrix point of view, enormously help if you could foresee problems during flight um, mm. and then connect that uh, to to the ground. Um, So, for instance, something is broken and already the mechanic is ready and the component is there, therefore minimizing the ground time um, and optimizing the efficiency of the flight and the passenger comfort.
3: Mm. In that uh, aspect, Dirk, how much has KLM already done in this predictive maintenance, predictive diagnostics, prognostics, Um, big data? Well,
1: exactly. So I'm not the, the, the... uh, the the expert on that subject, uh, you know, probably uh, uh, our esteemed colleague of Leon and I, Walter uh He is our uh, he yes. is our he's our expert in that. Um, so it, it, so you should be perhaps even Walter. Well, to I know
3: very well. Yeah, we
1: should. Yeah, um, yeah. But 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 in general, we are we are working on that. We are uh, truly investigating all these kind of uh, of information, all these kind of technologies, in order to support. Uh, our business um, and, and to support our business is always in, in it's, a, it's always a double edged sword because on one hand, we are an MRO company and we are the ones who are looking, uh, can we maximize um, the usage of the components? Uh, can we uh, predict that a component, if you take it out now, uh, it needs a minor repair instead of leaving it on for a couple of flight hours and then ending up with a, with a major repair of an overall? Uh, that would save huge amount of money. Uh, and on the other hand, it should help the operator, eh, by one end, because we are, as, as an MRO, cutting down on, 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 on cost, but also in the operator in the sense that maximizing, uh, as I said already, eh, so my timing in the maintenance center, maximizing flight time and minimizing a maintenance time.
0: So so Dirk, you you raised something really interesting. Having worked myself on a number of the different uh, predictive maintenance platforms that have been brought to market over the last six, seven years, uh, many of those platforms look at a a business case of reducing AOG. Here's Mark with a quick editor's note. AOG stands for aircraft on ground and is a key metric that airlines use to determine how much money they're making because if an airplane is on the ground, it's not making any money. Right, hey, you know, if I, could, if I could detect a problem in advance and schedule that in a non-disruptive time, I'll avoid an AOG event, right? What you're talking about from a business case standpoint is we should be able to be able to predict uh, maintenance work that would extend the service life of the component. Um, where from more of a long term planning standpoint, right, it's if I do this work now, I avoid having to do uh, more expensive or more time consuming work in the future. It's a, that's a, it's a maybe a subtle difference you know, spoken, but I think it's really it's a very different use case. I'm not not quite sure it's a use case that the predictive maintenance programs that have been released to market over the last 4 or 5 years are really focused on
1: um no for as i see uh, the, the first one is is the is the one to make logic yeah so um make something which is impre- unpredictable make something predictable
4: mm.
1: uh, so that that helps you it's a logical first step from a uh, and, and and therefore uh, i'm I'm looking always at these problems from a more logistical supply chain type of fashion making it even more predictable um helps you in getting the benefits and, and, and doing the, the the business so for me that would be uh, the next step to do that so predictive maintenance is not only in, in in the AOG but is in the whole life cycle of of a component um, and then you would end up with, um, with, with with a kind of tool in which you can balance out okay I can do it now but then I have, uh, have, have X cost or I can do it uh, uh, later on but I then have double X cost hey, yeah. hey where is the aircraft now what happens and what what helps or so to uh, can I afford the, the, the ground time.
3: Yeah, that's very interesting. At this point, can can I put in a small plug for uh, this work that we are doing within HM1, which is another committee on SAE? We actually have a document called ARP 6275, which is on cost-benefit analysis of uh, maintenance systems and uh, IVHM systems. So everything that Dirk has said and you've been speculating about, you can go and read there.
4: Okay, great.
0: That's a good plug, because one of the things we'll talk about if we get into the predictive maintenance side of our conversation is how no one's paying for it. So a cost benefit analysis (laughs) would be a very useful thing for the industry to have. Right, and and what's also, I mean, just uh, the, the the other riff on that is, again, for the last few years, a lot of folks have been talking about leveraging this platform or that platform to reduce your delays and cancellations and to reduce your unplanned, unexpected events. Um, some airlines have responded by saying, "Well, how about uh, you know, to the to the major airframers, right, Airbus and Boeing? How about instead you just build us a more reliable airplane that doesn't have the <laughs> unplanned event to begin with?"
3: I mean, this whole cost-benefit analysis issue is really important, I think. And both and Leon are involved in the uh, cost-benefit analysis for blockchain document that we have within uh, G31, which is ARP. sixty nine eighty four. So here is another plug for a cost-benefit analysis document. And
0: that's a good segue into blockchain, which is, again, the next of the three topics that we wanted to talk to you. So I know KLM has been an early uh, explorer and investor in the blockchain technology, and I remember being at a conference a couple of years ago listening to, uh, I don't think it was you, Dirk, uh, but a colleague of yours, yeah. talk about a proof of concept uh, where you're recording uh, parts on and off wing and part swapping between KLM Air France and, and Virgin Atlantic. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and can talk about where that's gone and, and what KLM is doing with blockchain today?
1: Okay. Um, well, first of all, the the, uh, the 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 idea is that you record um, where are the components flying, so uh, recording flight hours, uh, cycles, and these kind of stuff. Uh, but also important is um, the circumstance or the the. the, the position on the globe where they are flying, because as, as we have have seen in a, in our in our business, components flying in a desert environment or in a Arctic environment, and that's not necessarily uh, the same components, of course, uh, or components flying in a in a, a jungle uh, in a in a very moist uh, environment, uh, mm-hmm. suffer more uh, or need more maintenance than. Um, the components flying in a more moderate uh, state. From that point of view, so that's one of the cost drivers we now usually don't have. We we, we only have um, these insights uh, afterwards. Um, knowing that from uh, the business, if you buy surplus parts... Uh, you end up with a, a, a part with a certificate stating where it was maintained the last time. But it could be very interesting knowing that the same part is already uh, the last two years, uh, four times uh, yeah. in the same repair shop because it is a uh, um, it, it is a rogue unit or the unit that has something wrong with it. So this information um, increases or decreases the value of a of a component you're buying. Uh, we talked also in the, in the 30, uh, G31 on, 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 uh, on, on issues on, on, on returning a lease aircraft back to its lesser. Yeah, they want to know what's installed, how's the status, etc., etc. And I can tell you, there's a lot of uh, time-consuming uh, 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 involved now, a lot of manpower involved in getting all that data uh, uh, back to them and, and
0: it's all in, in a paper shape. And here's Mark with another editor's note, just to emphasize Dirk's last statement. So a lease return for a single aircraft costs an airline, on average, seven million dollars. And funny enough, only one million out of that seven million has anything to do with physical maintenance. The rest of that six million, oh, it's all paperwork.
1: Uh, I don't know how you are with uh, papers, but I'm very bad with mm. papers. Uh, I want to have data in uh, in uh and not in a pile uh, of a4s. I want to have it in a pile of gigabytes. So we kind of came up with the idea in in the sense that how can you track components, make mm-hmm. it available throughout the world, and and can you can you follow them, and can you store this information without uh, uh, one organization being owned uh, owning this data and And is able to to temper with it. So at one time we had a an um, um, uh, in introduction to blockchain in a whole day, and then we had some 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 really uh, very good um, uh, blockchain uh, specialists um, and together with with uh, for instance, also Walter was there, but also other colleague of mine, and we we talked over back and forth in the sense of okay, what does the technology? What is your business like? Uh, and that's in 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 that sense. It sparked the idea of getting this information on a worldwide level, uh, tracking components, making sure you are uh, adding data, uh, knowing where it has been, uh, knowing what it is. Um, it, this increases in in transparency. Uh, transparency is also always good for for security and for safety in this case. More not security, but safety. It helps in 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 so if you are if you're working nicely with your stuff, you do your, your thing good, you are rewarded because uh, your components are m- worth more uh, if you want to sell them or if you want to buy them, you know what you are buying. Uh, so that's that's the,
0: the main goal. So you think about the car right? and the fact that in many countries, this is somewhat of a solved problem because you have national registries that track cars and track you know, car history. Right. In the United States, there's a company called Carfax that's very you know, famous for doing this. And you know the the concept of quote unquote putting a Carfax together for airplanes, right? Which which really does speak to right, uh, I I think a lot of the use cases that the, that you mentioned, Dirk, is is a concept I know a number of folks in the industry have had.
3: Plain facts, you always feel first.
0: Yes, but yeah. <clears throat> you know, what are i despite the fact that i think there's there's wide consensus on the value of having this information put together at an ecosystem level what are the challenges to making it real how come it hasn't yet passed a a, a fit and start level or a poc level to become something with critical mass okay what needs to happen to make that happen well, well,
1: well first of all a, 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 a kind of trust um uh it, it is a big issue um and and to very to to so these are all of course my personal opinions uh but seeing the landscape of companies um and and then what big companies on one end eh, so boeing airbus but also collins aerospace honeywell are dominating the uh, other end of the market where the airlines are the ones who are using the aircraft um are very are are, are very small uh, so, the, the number of, 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 of people buying aircraft is a lot um, compared with the number of companies supplying them. So, it is on a original aircraft manufacturing side, but also on the equipment side. There are only… So, yes, sure, there are several small companies, but there are, there are four, five, six very big companies and they are on one hand dominating the market on that side. Mm. There is the the option in the sense that we we need to to create trust with each other. That in order to uh, how should I say to get a, a a worldwide more efficiency in the system. So, instance, I uh, I learned somewhere that we uh, we uh, there were sold for a particular type uh, a thousand aircraft, but there were more than 1,300 uh, There were more for for. There were sold spare parts for 1,300 aircraft. So there is a huge inefficiency in the system.
0: Uh, it's, it reminds me of what we're having a, a conversation on an earlier with Dr. P.K. at NASA, who is the director of the Aeronautics Research Institute. and His big focus right now is on Uh, building out and ensuring the robustness of the supply chain for urban air mobility and and for these next generation segments of our industry. And he said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, what we need to make sure we ensure is the availability of a many to many supply chain. That's a noble um, effort and a a really very interesting statement you look at legacy commercial aviation. We don't have anything like that. We have a pyramid. Right. Way down in the weeds, there are lots of different suppliers of actuators, ball bearings and nuts and bolts. But then they flow up into just a few suppliers of components that then flow up to really airliners. Right. And, and it does create, I think, somewhat of an interesting imbalance, particularly around politics and trust in this industry.
3: I think Paula might uh, take some exception to that. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely right, Rafi. We're talking
0: about larger airliners, but that's absolutely right.
3: I have one quick question of Dirk, and that is in this, uh, what you talked about, the blockchain that, uh, you and your colleagues are doing, is it just going to be, or is the thought just going to be that it will be part of KLM, just KLM, or would it be a consortium, or is... Well,
1: well, well what, what was one of the conclusions we, we came up to? You can never do this if you want to do something um, worldwide, if you want to do it, you cannot do it on your own. You cannot mm-hmm. enforce on your own a a new system. Um, there's a there's a famous blockchain case uh, which is um, uh, from Meersk, uh and and, and they uh, developed a, a nice case and then said to all their competitors, well, you can use it. Well, guess what? None of the computer competitors would use it. So if you want to do something like that. Uh, I, you could argue there are two options. You could do it from a uh, uh point of view. So you could say, hey, the FAA or the ASA would would in, in instigate, or would would initiate this kind of uh, stuff. Uh, and on the other hand, something, uh, something, something. You can do it as a as a as a group of com- uh, companies, as a consortium. Um, and we came to the conclusion: well, you should do the latter. I think.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's really that's I I think that's absolutely true. And by the way, we're going to have to say goodbye to Ravi because Ravi, you have to bolt. So it was a pleasure as always. Um, and we're going to bring on board Paula to help me finish the interview. And thanks, Ravi. Thank uh, you all.
3: It was wonderful, Dirk and Leah. Thank Welcome, you. Welcome, Paula. Pleasure, and, Ravi. and we have
0: um you know sure. competitors trying to do this. Um, it, you you run into instantaneous headwind, and and we see this we see this on some of the predictive maintenance work as well. Right. And uh, you know not only, I think is a consortium needed to drive neutrality and trust, to get rid of those headwinds and assuage you know, participants that there aren't going to be, uh, conflicts of interest in actually working together, but a benefit for all that raises all tides. Yeah. Again, we get back to our favorite topic of standards. A standard is needed that will allow all participants, OEM, independent MRO, or airline operator, you know, to reap the benefits of the of the technology ecosystem, regardless of how they uh, or how each independent contributor might, might run a process or, or or drive a program
5: yeah so right Mark. um yeah. just one thing to add to this right. um comments as well. I believe that we are in this pandemic time because of coronavirus. So we have many and many um, digital conference right now. So yesterday we have one from Stanford open AA for an aer- Aeronautic and an Astronomics uh, conference. So um, one topic that calls my attention is what we are discussing here is can we trust AI? So um, that's the big questions because of the explainability of this algorithm and the robustness that Dirk and also Leon had talked about. We have, for example, at Embraer, one program called Ahead Pro. Uh, which is aircraft health analysis and diagnosis for the, to assure the uh, components health man- monitoring and maintenance for some customers as well. And I know that KLM uh, have their own special programs like Leon uh, working as a, also a professor and uh, and his PhD we all need some this bunch of data to do this analysis and we need the infrastructure and we also have to uh, create this new algorithm so in AI and machine learning we can use this kinds of algorithm to help the predict maintenance and uh, increase uh, passenger experience and because no one likes to be <laughs> the stock in the airport uh, because of a system failure or because of some uh, minor repair that we have to do in a a certain aircraft while you are step on board. So it's boring and all airlines and OEMs and this... All actors related to this uh, uh, environment, they aim that we can uh, help on this decision making um, process. So for Leon, as your experience as in a professor, do you see um, uh, that uh, there are many uh, papers and uh, students from PhD and uh, also studying in his graduation, this new algorithm that's not so new. We have this AI for a long time. Um, But do you see uh, their connections to your work uh, at KLM at this moment, uh, we already talked about blockchain, about the infrastructure for the Internet. But uh, what else we do we have in terms of this new algorithm? Because G34 is for safety critical as well. But I know we are still learning all this um, process together. So can you explain a little bit of your experience?
2: Yeah, I think uh, there's a very nice example, which also involves uh, Mware. Uh, And we have a European research project where we collaborate uh, on its Horizon 2020 project called Remap. And in that project, uh, uh, we research uh, how condition-based maintenance can be performed, both at uh, component but also at airframe uh, structure uh, level. And, uh, well, the the project considers uh, subsequently how uh, both data from an aircraft uh, uh, can uh, detect, but also how subsequently maintenance c- uh, planning can be optimized uh, using uh, such data, and. And essentially, this is a, a nice combination of where, on one side, data science is being used, but also when you look at all the processes involved and how, in the interactions, are being performed in, uh, in maintenance processes, uh, agent-based simulations are methods that are used to uh, uh, analyze and optimize uh, how ultimately uh, maintenance can be planned uh, in a better way. So um, it's. Uh, Project, which is essentially touching on many of the, the topics we have already discussed, and that was also mentioned by Derek, uh, the, the, the cost of maintenance and how to optimize that. Uh, and this project, uh, and that's, I think, uh, pretty unique in this kind of an endeavor, is the project also con- uh, considers how data can be used by data scientists, where the data comes from aircraft that are operated by multiple airlines. Mm. So how do you uh, essentially use data from multiple airlines without having the data to uh, essentially go to a place outside the walls of the airline?
0: So we're talking about an airplane that's wet leased, right, that uh, may spend one day flying for you know one major airline and the next day flying for
2: another? Not, not specifically. We're really looking at the infrastructure supporting that kind of operation. So it, it's not yet practically uh, used. We are trying to come up with a infrastructure, and that's a project which is uh, run by uh, Atos. They like they want to create a platform where you know the data is being analyzed by an algorithm that's being sent from a platform to uh, the data itself and then uh, the analytics is done and maybe then through federated analytics you can combine uh, the learned results into say a single uh, decision tree or neural network and and these kind of mechanisms are being, uh, also part of this project, because we recognize that a lot of the data ultimately being used for maintenance is coming from ultimately operational aircraft, and you need to have that data available to do analytics on and, and predict uh, elements. And and essentially, that's a topic which uh, really connects with my research into how to enable this uh, in infrastructures.
0: So, so thanks, Leon. As we wrap up this segment, uh, can you take a minute to talk about Exchange Well? Right, because I think I mean that's that's something I understand is critical component to allowing different uh, stakeholders from different companies to share and exchange data in an ecosystem and scale.
2: Well, f- first of all, if you want to think about sharing data and achieving uh, you know those common benefits, then you must first recognize this common benefit with organizations talking to each other. And that these kind of discussions need to be organized, and that's what I think uh, is one of the first steps that Act Change Well, as an SE program, uh, is uh, targeting to perform. It it first of all wants to bring organizations to get together in a pre-competitive session where you say, okay, let's see what common benefits for sharing data are, and once. You, you are starting these discussions. You also recognize you cannot achieve such benefits as your own organization. You may not have, for example, enough data to be available for the learning process to make an algorithm uh, accurate enough. So you need to have multiple data sources, also maybe the diversity of different uh, organizations supplying uh, data that needs to be discussed and organized. And Once you have that recognition, then you need to have a discussion about the rules that you want to uh, apply by which you can share the data. So this is something when you, for example, talk about a bilateral relationship between the two organizations, lots of lawyers come together and they take ages to ultimately come to a data sharing agreement, which then can uh, maybe after half a year or a year get operationalized. Now, these kind of discussions you can also uh, bring together, and then together as a community talk about these rules, and they then become rules of engagement for members that all have these, these rules that they apply to themselves as being member of the organization. And once you have that established, that level of um, understanding allows much easier to have contracts being established between organizations that can be maybe based on templates you have already developed. So the speed of creating all kinds of interactions based on on rules or contracts you establish, that's the next step you can start talking about in a consortium. And that's what ExchangeWell can also facilitate. And very importantly, there is uh, also an, an, uh, a trust, uh, sorry, a uh, antitrust uh, regulation umbrella, which lawyers monitor that you are not colluding, uh, uh, especially if you talk about uh, uh, value that ultimately is going to exchange. Uh, That may be a a sensitive topic. You have to understand that, you know, that's very sensitive to anti-competition law. And one big example of how that went wrong, you can see at, for example, MasterCard. And That started as an association where banks started to collaborate to uh, facilitate credit card transactions. But they also talked about exchange fees. And that got themselves ultimately in trouble and uh, ended up in a $6 billion, uh, <laughs> class action antitrust uh, suit, which uh, the merchants um, claimed uh, towards uh, MasterCard and Visa because they thought the interchange fee mechanism was uh, a monopolistic behavior so mm-hmm. the antitrust umbrella when you start talking about you know considering data as as the new oil and the new value you also need uh, this antitrust umbrella to be present to have these kind of discussions without you know the risking uh, collusion and ultimately uh, fines and then once you have those rules in place you need to organize the execution of the rules such that members understand how to behave and how also you enforce those rules. And you may have a, a consortium with some power to to monitor, for example, certain act changes and see if they are compliant. Also, you need to have a part of the organization there to modify the rules you have established. So the rulemaking process is something you also need to organize. And once you have this operational and running there will always be disputes so you also need to figure out how you are going to do arbitration on this consortium uh, inf- uh, system to make it really trustworthy so and then you haven't even talked about infrastructure too uh, execute whatever you're trying to do. So, before you can come up to uh, a working, say, uh, place where you do trusted data sharing, you have to have these three steps uh, uh, done before you then say, okay, now I need an infrastructure that can execute and enforce the rules and uh, understand the policies and the contracts uh, we have uh, arranged that ultimately enables, say, a data science workflow to happen. Uh, across uh, multiple uh, data sets from different airlines residing in different locations. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem I'm i really. totally agree. Yeah. 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 So it can help uh, construct these discussions that lead to these kind of solutions.
5: Yeah, I, uh, it's an amazing example, Leon. I remember the first time that we talked by video conference, it was after a one of uh, you met one of my friends at the Embraer, um, from, I think airlines operation and conference. Um, so you mentioned about this digital marketplace in this environment that we can trust, for example, a fair environment for airlines, OEMs and supply chains that they can, um, put their data in this special place and bring right and better results because as we, you said, um, with bad imp- and we don't have any kind of magic algorithm for AI to give a, a good result so we need uh, this kind of environment to for between the, the old players to have a fair mm-hmm. in uh, and we can trust an AI let me say yeah. that so amazing when you describe it this um yeah. and um, so when
2: we link this to the work of g34 and uh, g34 is uh, also about the uh, making sure the data you learn from can always be traced back to its source and the data sources can be trusted, they're robust. So this kind of environment can also support the lineage, uh, the, you know, through a blockchain, for example, we could keep track of all the transactions and all the stuff that is needed to uh, feed the AI learning process. And that can then always be traced back when something ultimately uh, doesn't uh, work uh, correctly. If uh, You know, simple example. Uh, if you you train an AI system to uh, distinguish between cats and dogs, and suddenly a cat is shown to the C algorithm, and it says it's a dog. You need to know why this happens. So, okay. and that's where you need to go back and say, how can it have learned this uh, kind of behavior? And uh, that's where the a digital data marketplace can also, you know, be kind of an audit mechanism uh, to allow uh, this lineage to happen according to membership rules. And so it's the consortium that determines what level of uh, you know, uh, data, for example, needs to be kept or what can, needs to be traced so members uh, can organize it amongst themselves. The standards can sort of describe it, but ultimately to operationalize the standards, we need to have these kind of discussions amongst organizations to have this, this operationalized. So, absolutely agree. Yes, we right. don't
5: have the unintended behavior, right? We want to avoid this unintended behavior for AI. Go ahead, Mark, please. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no. So, having a consortium uh, drive the the data sharing ecosystem for aviation, I think, is an absolute requirement. Yeah. Gentlemen, I want to I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. This has been a fascinating interview. Any final topics you'd like to bring up and discuss?
2: yeah I was just wondering about uh, because this is really getting more and more uh, actual or um, that is that uh, AI can also be used uh, for sustainability topics, and that's really the future of uh, of aircraft. How do we make aircraft or flying more sustainable, and AI can play a role in there as well. Of course, we need to look at uh, the bio uh, f- fuel and how to fuel aircraft and uh, you know, use maybe liquid hydrogen like uh, Lockheed already did in the 50s on the CL400. And, you know, boy, (laughs) imagine if they would have succeeded to make Mm this app successful and what it would have impact right now. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) but uh, but anyway, but AI also can have uh, uh, a significant role in, you know, making uh, customers uh, do more sustainable choices towards air travel. And so uh, it's on that side where AI can help in aviation. And also, uh, well, uh, making uh, more sustainable choices towards uh, maintenance, uh, making uh, aircraft uh, um, produce less. Uh, material waste or uh, use components uh, longer. So the angle of, uh, of sustainability is becoming uh, increasingly an angle that's uh, from the business side is being asked uh, from us because the government oh, yeah. is asking <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. aviation to become uh, more uh, environmental sensitive and what are we doing? And we need to be able to answer those questions
0: so, so that, the government is the uh, government is asking KLM to tell people to go take the train yes I
2: exactly.
1: guess nope. that's something but but it's also a market eh? so so in, in a market perspective it's true what leon, leon says the, the market is requesting more and more uh, eco-friendliness uh, minimize your footprint um, determining how much is your footprint um, and for instance one of our customers is at the other end of our uh, from us at the other end of the globe. Uh, so, is it very handy to transport? Uh, and I sometimes make a joke: uh, components uh, um, make more flying hours off wing than on wing, um, uh, due to the fact we ship them all over the world. Um, is that is that sustainable? No, I don't think so. Well, currently, no. We there is no other way. But that's that's something, yeah, which will increase importance in the coming years yeah I
0: want to welcome martin whitfield to the table martin you've been quiet the entire time which is uncharacteristic first and foremost are you still with us
4: i i am indeed mark and uh thank you a very interesting uh conversation and as always um I, I learned something when uh uh talking to you guys that so uh, this has been uh interesting and certainly uh, an area that you know i i've been interested in, in for a long time and leon back to some of your discussion points around the consortium which um all, all, all made sense i i guess you know one thing that i always see in the the aerospace industry or industry in general is you know europe has more of a institute a standard enact the standard people follow the standard type of approach whereas in the u.s the the the, the there's more a you know Many companies can compete for a certain technology. Um that has advantages, disadvantages. the The latest case, I guess, to be would be you know the all around the future navigation system and choosing which technology is the best technology to um, to apply there. But um bringing it back to what you're talking in the consortium is, uh, do you see any movement in Europe around the EU changing any of the antitrust laws that may be? Um, were developed to control, uh, you know, oil and, you know, the historic um, monopolies that developed uh, around raw materials as opposed to data being the raw material. Do you see any movement other than GDPR around data regulations in
2: the EU? Yeah, this is a very uh, active topic uh, in the EU to uh, see... uh What, uh, you know, uh, what the role of data is in the data economy, and where you, of course, see models where uh, platforms are being uh, created uh, that ultimately want to uh, serve uh, shareholder value, uh, only connect. uh, two parties together, but do not want to assume any liability for uh, connecting them. Huh? The well-known uh, example are, uh, you know, the the booking platforms for travel or hotels or cars and stuff. Um, so the EU is really working on uh, regulation for these kind of, you know, intermediaries. Uh, to uh, take responsibilities to essentially, um, you know, serve the customer. Uh, Ultimately, a lot of the regulations is around uh, consumers uh, better, but in the same, along the same lines, uh, protecting consumer uh, rights, you also see movements where uh, business to business, um, you know, use of data is uh, being uh, stimulated in ways which look at aspects like you have the right on data sovereignty, Uh, So, your data is your data, and you determine what happens with it, and you always uh, should be able to, uh, you know, even if you uh, give it to somebody else, uh, to see what they're doing. So make it more transparent on what is done uh, with the data. And there are several uh, now uh, projects around uh, the data economy in in Europe, and uh, one of the the biggest uh, initiatives. Right now, uh, being uh, essentially proposed by the French and the German government, is to uh, to create kind of a European initiative, which um, is called uh, Gaia X. Uh, 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 you can look that uh, that up. But this is about uh, you know the current power of uh, both uh, Chinese and U.S. big tech companies. Uh, essentially uh, ingesting all our data, all processing all our data and what is the alternative? Uh, the, the German minister of uh, economic Affairs uh, he was really uh, f- uh, startled and that was one of the reasons why he helped initiate this initiative is that uh, 90 or so percentage of uh, the government, say the local governments, Use platforms that are not in in Germany. They are, uh, say, mm-hmm. China, Chinese uh, platforms. So the government data is not in our country. So that really started to help him. And so one of the objectives is to see, you know, how can we bring uh, regulation in place that at least uh, ensures data sovereignty and ensures the fact that uh, you know you have more control given the fact that all these big tech companies have already the infrastructures available and what alternatives can we bring to the table from the European perspective to allow us to be more in control of our data. So, yes, definitely there are very uh, um, key initiatives and there's a lot of funding going into uh, trying to solve, uh, uh, you know, the the dominance of uh, certain tech platforms and also... Foster the collaboration of certain sectors, and I've identified, I think, something like nine sectors, including mobility, health, uh, uh, logistics, uh, agriculture, those kind of lists, to foster collaboration in these sectors using data spaces, and data spaces uh, that are specifically enabling, uh, you know, economic growth in those sectors. The um that that that's interesting. It's good to hear. Um,
4: the the only concern, uh, you know, sovereignty in terms of you own the data. That that's one thing because then the consortium model could truly be a, a global model. Sovereignty in terms of political geographic base. Then that that obviously potentially lead to um still being some data interoperability issues between each of the power the the political geographic power blocks that that sovereignty represents so um if sovereignty is more around this idea of a consortium and um you know the value of that data helping every member of that consortium then 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 certainly that that would be a good thing because no, you know, the whole point of IP protection is to stop other people that you don't want getting the data getting the data, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't believe that is just a yeah. geopolitical consideration.
2: Yeah. It, it's it, all about it, it's, uh, these collaborations in in federated ways where you you work together uh, for these benefits. So it's uh, it's more uh, about uh, creating you know, consortia, federations uh, to support certain uh, use cases in vertical sectors. So that's where there's this work stream in Gaia X called, uh, you know, where, where all these use cases come together and there's another work stream that looks at what kind of infrastructures do you need to do this? So.
0: So so this is this is a good segue back into, into aviation, right? Because uh, what I've seen driving um predictive maintenance last five years which uses the same same type of data that that ai would use right it's it's where it's looking at uh low level sensor data taken off the aircraft that represents the data stream of of an environment and having control is important and and having things in a in a um, secure space is important, but it has to be also balanced. With being able to bring data together and to bring stakeholders together to drive value, so we said we we hinted we'd be talking a little bit about predictive maintenance. Even though um, you know the, the, you could argue that uh, where where we see digital MRO and and transformation in MRO and maintenance going is not necessarily in creation of predictive maintenance systems, but in more of these consortium driven. Uh, data sharing and blockchain systems, where I think there's you know, arguably more value to be had over the near term. But over the last five years, there was a menace amount of money and attention poured onto being able to predict maintenance issues. And from my own personal experience, having worked on some of these larger platforms in industry and going around the world, it is a real, real challenge. It's a real challenge. So we 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 did a poll on our initial podcast. Um, actually, the, the first podcast that we recorded, which may not actually be the podcast uh, uh, that uh, we first released to the public. Um, and I'll ask this poll again because you know, I think you know Paula, you you you're a part of the original, but no one else. We hear an in industry. These new platforms, right? Seven, eight, seven, A350s, Embraer E2s, right? But we we hear about yeah, the seven, eight, seven generates a terabyte of data per flight and the A350 generates 25,000 parameters per flight, right, and the E2 and the C-series and the A220, uh, you know, and and I assume also the the Mitsubishi SpaceJet, it's now called, right, are data-rich aircraft. But before COVID, if you looked at the entire flying fleet, how much data do you think a plane generates, not per flight, on average, but per day? And Paula, you can't answer the question because you've already, you already answered the
4: question
5: okay, on yeah, an yeah, earlier right.
0: podcast. We'll start, <laughs> we'll start with Leon. <laughs> Leon goes first because Leon's in IT and an we over an airline. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of data generated, but how much you take off the aircraft is, of course, uh, so uh, on, uh, on what uh, the requirements for you know doing predictive maintenance are so so, uh, so
0: let let's refine our let's refine our, our definition a little bit right so by generated we're not talking about how much data is actually taken off and used but how much data is actually generated and sent somewhere or stored somewhere right just because we're not talking about theoretical generation where you know a, a component has the potential if you turn a switch to generate data, it's on average how much data is being generated and collected on an aircraft, whether it's used or not, it's a different question per day.
2: Well, <laughs> if if you have the latest generation uh, engine uh, on there <laughs> with the terabyte uh, generated, uh, uh, per uh, per engine and you use uh, say uh, uh 100 max of it uh per engine and then 50 max for uh for the aircraft 250 per
0: flight or per day <laughs>
2: uh, i would say uh um
0: per day okay 250 megabytes of data generated per day it's good it's a good estimation dirt
1: um I was somewhere in the in the region, about 15 gigabytes so
4: mm. per day. Okay. All right. Martin? I would tend per aircraft to go 300 megabytes a day, but...
5: Three hundred megabytes. I also agree with Dirk. I like uh, one hundred megabytes per aircraft per day. Um, so, so
0: according yes. to Teledyne, right, and and again, I've, I've trusted Teledyne as a good source on this because they have the lion's share of the data acquisition systems market for onboard aircraft. It's thirty megs. So not 30 megabytes of data per flight, 30 megabytes of data per day, engine and otherwise. And, and it's a much lower figure than us in technology you know, would probably imagine. And certainly it's a much lower figure than it's being marketed. Um, and, and of course, right, that's an average. So you're counting, you know, the the both, you know, the, the, the new aircraft and the old aircraft that are flying. And if you, you know, sort of generalize up and say, well, you know, there are more short haul aircraft than long haul aircraft. And you know, there's the 737 and the A320. Um, and we know that the 737 doesn't generate nearly as much data. Um, there's an older architecture that begins to explain it. But you know, part of, part of the issue, of course, is also that uh, just because a, a component, just because an aircraft has the potential to generate all this information, doesn't mean that it's being stored on something that can have the capacity to take all that information, right? So, I mean, you, you think of a, a quick access recorder and the fact that most data is still stored on a compact flash card. Right, where True. Most because of the,
5: the, those weight and certification aspects and mm-hmm. the hardware being used, that's the reason uh, be, between this trade-off, what is really being recorded and what's <laughs> just passing through the data buses, for example, being used and for ACAS uh, messages or the logic yep. uh, to help some controlling and navigation and so on.
0: Now, Paula, I know that the, you know, the new Embraer E-2 has the ability to download data when it lands, right? So so how does that help uh, up the amount sure. of information that we <laughs> can get into a system?
5: Yes, with the second generations for the EJets, the E-2, we have one special box called the wire, Wireless Server Unit, uh, because manually mechanics are when the air, aircraft are on gates on there airports, we manually uh, took this QR data, for examples for four or five flights. And we also have the problems of missing data and so on. So with wireless, every unit, uh, this special box, it automatically on gate, you can uh, upload this QR data to uh, the cloud. And this data being used for, as Leon said, for analytics perspective, for predictive perspective for the maintenance and operational fleet. So it's really important to have all this information stored because in the past, (laughs) when the E one generation were created, we didn't think about the predictive maintenance. Right. Mm -hmm. It was a long time ago. So that's the main purpose. It's different right now.
0: And this whole this whole concept of downloading data when the plane lands is something also I know that the NEOs are doing right. And after doing. But even then, it's not a perfect world. So let's, let's look at Schiphol, right, where Schiphol is a rather efficient airport. So if a plane lands on a runway, gets to the gate, right? the data has to be downloaded and transmitted to the cloud, processed through the the analytics system, and an alert has to be raised by the time the plane gets to the gate, which might be 5-10 minutes. Right. Um, So that if someone needs to do something, they can be notified and come running down to the gate, get on the aircraft to take care of the issue so that you preserve the turnaround time. But, you know, and and that's that's sometimes it's hard to do with a 4G connection, unless maybe you're landing at that runway as people that was built on the other side of the Netherlands. You you guys know know the one I'm talking about where it takes 30 minutes to. <laughs> to get in but not every airport has the luxury
5: the cool. <laughs> for sure yeah
0: it's like and o'hare um are have, have runways that that and, and denver as well have runways that that seem to be right very very far from their terminals but um right the 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 I guess an impetus of putting this on to the aircraft right is something that we're all working on in AI is to get to that next level of efficiency where again you can get the the mechanics there even before the plane lands the still right uh, you know we're talking about um, megabytes of data. Right. Not gigabytes or terabytes. Right. I mean, it's it, there, there's, a, there's a whole new infrastructure that needs to be built. Right. To be able to sure. process all of that. Um, and 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 transmit all of that, you know. And and we're still talking about systems that work off eight cars, which is a 1970s VHS, VHF uh, analog technology that happens to be quite pricey. And and what we need is is a cloud, um, not cloud, satellite based transmission, which we have, but at least in the states, a lot of it's been designed not for streaming. Aircraft data, but or providing passengers the ability to watch Netflix. Mm. Right, okay. <laughs>
4: so, priorities. It's the dream. are so the business. People, you know? Yeah, so you are paying more money for the seats if they've got their in-flight experience with their own, you know, Netflix watch list in front of them and being able to just continue halfway through the last episode they didn't manage to uh, to watch. But yeah. I, I I think. I I agree completely that this is a huge challenge and I think there's a you know is is there a a step in between the consortium which I think sounds like a great way to help you know longer term but is is there you know more on aircraft predictive capability that um then you know smaller a packet of data down to the ground, whether it's over the VHF or whether it's over you know your uh, the your netflix download is there is there more a sort of like a phone home type you know the aircraft is figuring out and sending just critical messages back to the ground to start initiating some of that you know right mechanic right right gate with the right part to aid uh the 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 turnaround time so i yeah. I don't know if that uh, uh, a realistic interim step that uh, you know, Collins or the OEMs can be looking at while these bigger discussions are going on yeah so folks
0: we're at time i want to thank you all i think this was a lovely lovely chat
2: well mark uh, paula uh, and martin thanks for uh, organizing this was a pleasure uh, participating it's always uh, a lot of fun
0: indeed a lot of fun as always well thank you dirk thank you leon and thank you team for another wonderful episode of future flying and thank you all for listening so after a several month winter hiatus, we are excited to be back and you can expect future episodes from us now on a monthly basis, at the very least. And hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to increase that cadence a little bit and giving you more regular material more consistently. You can always find us on your favorite podcast channel. Also, please be sure to check out our new website at www.futureflyingpodcast.com. From there, you can go see your back episodes, check out on the hosts and also uh, email us your feedback and questions we look forward to hearing from you all have a great day and a great week great month and we'll speak to you all really soon future flying is a product of the sae g34 podcast team our theme song is written by annie roboth and beth nielsen Chapman. the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests